This episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook. Download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 14-day trial, including a free download of your first book just for trying out their service. Some of the available titles include Paul Temple and the Margot Mystery by Francis Durbridge, Courting Death by Carol Stephenson, and Dead is Not an Option by Marlene Perez. So after you finish listening to BITD, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark and get your free audiobook today. Get him up here. No, no, fuck that. Nick doesn't do anything until Nick gets something for Nick. Got it? I want some hot chocolate. You want to hear about some job of mine? I want to see some goddamn hot chocolate. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. Flow. H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell? Let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered. They will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest. And together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint. Too much is a cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. We'll anticipate a three-car convoy with a backup team. And obviously we will try and stop the target before they can get away from us. What's in the case? That information is in the Is it heavy? Is it explosive? Is it changed to some unlucky bloke's wrist? We're going to have to chop it off? I All mean, right. What is it? But I'm not under any obligation to let you know. If you are not, then the price has got to go up. I'll get you the case, but the price has got to go up. It's going to be amateur night. I want $100,000. I want it up front. I want it in a bank account. I want another 100000 when you get the case. And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie. Right, Devin? Go watch that movie. <laughs> Derek, there's this... Middle-aged, kind of hot blonde woman wants me to play solitaire for her. Uh, I would strongly advise you to take up checkers. Oh, okay. Why? Why? Do I need to tell you why? I just got this offer in the mail from this mysterious doctor who offers to give me an entirely new life. Is this the doctor from Manchuria? I don't know. (laughs) If he comes from Manchuria... I thought maybe it was a Nigerian scam, but maybe it's not. If he comes from Manchuria, you do not want to accept that offer. Here, hold this mysterious case for me, okay? Well, (laughs) I can't do that because I'm getting ready to go take a ride on a train. Oh, okay. And everybody's going, what the hell is going on here? And if this was the first seven days in May, you would understand why. Yes, I would. But one thing we can definitely say is we're not inviting Marlon Brando back again to play the piano. Absolutely not. So what is all these references leading up to, you ask? 
Uh, and I'm going to let Tom explain it. This, this episode. Way back. Damn. The that far back? Very early. No, I think it may have been the first or second episode. Yeah, it may have been. We made reference to a film called Seconds. And we said, we need to do an episode on John Frankenheimer. Applause for applause. Was, when he was alive, a great, great, great man. Well, his passing away kind of revitalized mm-hmm. our fervor to do this episode, which we've always said yeah. that we're going to get to Frankenheimer. Today, we actually had planned to do an obscure movie yeah. episode, because we already did what is a monster review episode. Yeah. By the time you listen to this, I don't know if Tom will even be finished editing this thing <laughs> yet, because it's like three hours, because we got eight movies. Yeah. So, Plus a lot of bullshit about Liz Taylor and Sidney Lumet and but it, but why it, Kevin Smith's a crybaby. But it's interesting bullshit. Yeah. Just like all our bullshit is. And yes, I think our bullshit talking is Talking and bullshit and talking and bullshit and... Yeah, and we were going to do an obscure movie episode, but given how long that thing took, mm-hmm. we said that we're ready for the Frankenheimer yeah. episode because we pretty much... Mm-hmm have been up on our Frankenheimer. I just recently watched one of his movies last night or the night before, one I'd never seen before, The Train with yeah. Burt Lancaster, who he also made The Birdman of Alcatraz with. Oh my God, here it is. By the way, don't mean to interrupt. Yes, you do, but go ahead. But here it is. What? Me Karaoke. It's on there? It's on Facebook now, if you know where to find it. Okay, well. Yes, there is a thing of me doing You May Be Right by Billy Joel. I thought you hated Billy Joe. It worked any, for me. Because anytime anybody mentions we didn't start the fire, you start your foaming at the mouth yeah. routine. But people probably don't know about this. For the last couple of months, yeah, I've been, been doing the karaoke. Because I've been wanting to get out and meet more new people uh-huh. and just be more of a sociable person after my landlord. And I give him absolute credit for this. Verbally kicked my ass right. about being a mole in a hole. So when I kick your ass about it, that don't mean nothing otherwise, right? Well, you're not threatening me to kick me out of the apartment. Good point. There you go. See, I would never threaten to kick you out of your apartment because, see, you might take that as an invitation to come live with me. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, while I love you, I don't think I can live with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a weird relationship. Yes. Folks, my wife, my lovely Patricia, right. she always likes telling people, Derek and Tom, it's like Derek is having a girlfriend, but he's not having any <laughs> sex. But it's, it's like he's cheating, but with no sex. <laughs> <laughs> no. And people talk about us enough already. Can you yeah. imagine if you came and lived exactly. with me? <laughs> Friday, <laughs> I was in a karaoke contest. Has and I, I am going to come one night to see you. I really yes. am. I want to come. And I actually got to the this. finals. And the reason I got to the finals was this insane version of You May Be Right that okay. I did. Boy, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to laugh my ass off. Well, we'll play it after we get finished recording. Okay. Okay, but... As we were saying, we were going to finally pay off on this promise right. and talk about John Frankenheimer for about an hour and how much Derek and I believe he is a very, very, very great filmmaker. And if you have not seen the Frankenheimer movie, I envy you for seeing his work for the first time. He's an extraordinarily influential director on so many levels. Yes. But before we go any further, I just want to remind people that this episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark. They have over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. They ask you to sign up for a free 14-day trial, including a free download of your first book. Now, as I always do, I always choose three suggestions for what could be your first book tied into this episode. So, if you wanted to learn more about 
what we're going to talk about, right. you could get The Manchurian Candidate by Richard Condon. Which is naturally the novel that the movie was based on. Yes. You could get The Island of Dr. Moreau, dramatized, as opposed to a book on tape. Mm-hmm. It's like an actual little like yeah. audio play right. by H.G. Wells. And finally, you could get a book called Ludlum on Ludlum, where Robert Ludlum talks about his books and the art of writing. And what these three things have in common is that the book The Hallcraft Covenant was adapted by Frankenheimer into mm-hmm. a movie with Michael Caine. Yeah. And the other two were films that Frankenheimer did. Right. Obviously, Derek and I have a great deal of respect for Frankenheimer as a director. And I guess we should start like we usually do in these tributes. With a little short bio. With a little short bio, which I'm going to call up in just a second. Oh, okay. Then once you get the bio up and get that okay. in, we can get into some of our favorite Frankenheimer yes. moments. John Michael Frankenheimer was born in 1930. Born in Queens, New York, so he's a local guy. A local boy. The son of Helen Mary and Walter Martin Frankenheimer. A stockbroker. His father was of Jewish descent, and his mother was Irish Catholic. He grew up in New York City and became interested in movies at an early age, where he recalled going to the cinema every weekend. He's a graduate of Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and he also developed an interest in acting while in college, but began thinking seriously about directing when he was in the Air Force. This led him to join the film squadron based in Burbank, California, where he shot his first documentary. He began studying film theory by reading books about other famous directors, such as Sergei Einsteinen, and how-to books about the craft of filmmaking. He got his start, though, through television. Yeah. And this is something I think that's going to come up a lot, is that I think he learned a lot about how to direct actors. Something that he has in common <laughs> with, um, we talked about it yeah. briefly in the previous this episode, mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet, mm-hmm. who also learned his craft doing television drama, as you well know, and yeah. what you folks should know if you've been listening for a while. Back then when Lumet and Frankenheimer were working, that was the golden age of live television drama. Yeah. They did literally dozens, if not hundreds, of these TV right. dramas. He is credited with directing over 140 episodes Dang. of shows like Playhouse 90, Climax, and Danger. Perhaps his most famous television play was, of course, The Comedian, which starred Mickey Rooney as a very vicious insult comic. Mm-hmm. His first theatrical film was The Young Stranger in 1957. He then went back to television for a while, mm-hmm. but then moved permanently to motion pictures for the bulk of his career, starting with 1961's The Young Savages. Mm-hmm. He went back briefly in the tail end of his life to direct TV movies for TBS and TNT. Yeah. Some of his most famous work is what he calls the Paranoia Trilogy, ah. which is composed <clears throat> of The Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. Seven Days in May, and what I think is probably his greatest film, Seconds. Seconds, yeah. Most people, when you talk about I would say The Manchurian Candidate is probably his most well-known film, but for me and you, I know for me especially, I think that Seconds... Yeah, Seconds is without a doubt. Now, in the previous episode that we were talking about, and we were talking about, because you got to screen a copy of a movie from a filmmaker that you know know personally, and it's a movie about death. And we got into a brief discussion about philosophical aspects of death. Seconds, to me, is one of the greatest horror films ever made, because it deals with something that every man at some time in his life wished. Wish exactly. Mm-hmm. It also ties into what I was talking about about limitless review. Yeah. When I was talking about the genie out of the bottle. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. you get it, but it may not exactly be what you wish for, and that's what happens mm-hmm. in this movie to this character. Right. It's the ultimate existentialist horror film, and I adore it for that. It's got probably the finest mm-hmm. performance. Even himself, he said it. Even in his later years, he said he never gave a greater performance mm-hmm. than he gave in seconds. And yeah. I'm inclined to agree with him. Rock Hudson. 
mm-hmm. who was looked upon as a pretty boy actor of no real substance. Yeah. But when you look at a movie like this and like Giant, which I also talked yeah. about in the last episode, you could see like so many other actors that we talk about. When they're allowed to really act yeah. and they're given the material and a director that's willing to work with them and believes in them, it happened. In seconds, first of all, we meet this older man played right. by John Hamilton, I believe I think his so. name is. He's a middle-aged guy. He's a banker. He's not unhappy with his life, but he's not happy either. Yeah. He's bored. He's depressed. There's one really very heartbreaking scene where his wife, and that says something about their marriage, right? Or yeah. They're sleeping in separate beds. Yeah. And she tries to seduce him. And it fails miserably because he's just not interested anymore. Mm-hmm. Nothing in his life interests him. His kids have grown up and they moved away. He doesn't really have any friends. Him and his wife don't really yeah. know anything. He's profoundly unhappy. But then mm-hmm. he starts getting these mysterious phone calls from a friend of his who is presumably dead. Yeah. The guy tells him, I know what you're going through right now. Here's a way to get out yeah. of it. And he gives him a card and he says, go here. And he goes here. He gets sucked into this corporation run by the old man, played right. by Will Gear. And there's another brilliant scene where it's a verbal seduction, where he tells yeah. him what's wrong with his life and how this corporation can fix it. Yeah. Now, it says something right there. If this is so great, how come the old man doesn't do this? Yeah. What it is is that the corporation, in return for him signing over everything to him, they literally reshape him into a new man through intense physical conditioning. They plastic do all surgery. plastic surgery, physical therapy. They even teach him how to walk and speak differently. Frankenheimer had to convince... MGM that this sort of transformation was possible. Right. And he actually shot footage of plastic surgery to show to the... which actually made it into the film. Yeah. So, folks, when you see that shots, because they do have scenes of yeah. plastic surgery, that's actual thing. But here's something else I found out that's yeah. very interesting. The reason why these two actors were picked, John mm-hmm. Hamilton yeah. and Rock Hudson, because Frankenheimer consulted a plastic surgeon yeah. and said that their bone structure was similar enough no. that this was feasible. This is indicative of one of the reasons why I love Frankenheimer, is that he did his homework. Yeah. If a director nowadays came up with the same script, it would be just like, oh, the audience will just go with it. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't even bother explaining yeah. it. But he did take the time and consult a plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon said, if I had enough work, yeah, I could make John yeah. Hamilton look like Rock Hudson. Exactly. So he's now Tony Wilson. Right. That's who he is, and he's an artist. And he's given this whole brand new life. Yeah. And he goes to this commune out in California, mm-hmm. and it's other writers and artists and musicians and dancers. But, however... He's still not fitting in. Right. He's still unhappy. He's, He's got this relationship with this woman played by Salome Jen. But you're right. He feels out of place. He feels wrong. And there's this kind of hint that you and I have discussed in the past that this whole artist commune is composed entirely of people who went through this program. Yeah, seconds. They're all seconds. Yeah. They're all people that have been through. They never come out and state explicitly, at least not from what I remember. Yeah. But yeah, it's strongly hinted that these people have all been through this process. So now, what happens is that Ralph Hudson goes back to the old man, and he says... Well, first he goes back to his family. Yeah, he tries to go back to his family. And yeah. he, obviously they don't recognize him. Well, of course not, because he goes visit his yeah. which is against the first rule of the yeah. company, is that, no, once you have this new life, you got to leave your yeah. old one behind. You're not to have any contact. And I think he even goes back to his house and talks yeah. to his wife and says, oh, yeah, well, I used to work with your husband. And yeah. he talks to his daughter, who's yeah. now married to Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. <laughs> So he goes back to the old man and he says, listen, this isn't working out for me. I want another life. And the old man says, bullshit. We just spent a lot of money and time giving you this life. What are you talking about? Rock says, ran the ribs. So the old man says, okay, well, listen, I'll make you a deal. If you find me somebody else who wants to make this deal, we'll give you another yeah. life. 
So he's ushered into this big room, mm-hmm. which is composed of nothing but other seconds who are looking for somebody. Yeah, right. They're all at Desmond. Yeah. Now, we've seen this room earlier on in the movie right. when he was John Hamilton, but we didn't know what the purpose of right. it was for. Now we know. It's guys that are trying to find another sucker yeah. to take this deal. He doesn't find somebody to take this deal, and it doesn't end well No, for Rock Hudson. And what is... For me, is the most frightening last five minutes of any movie. And the funny I've thing is, is, you know what's coming. Yeah, and it's still. F- oh, you know long before he yeah. does. What's you happening. know, the second he's ushered into the room, you kind of figured out because, of course, the question that's not answered until that point is, where do they find all these dead bodies? They're passing off yeah. as the original guys, right? So if you folks are paying attention, you kind of know. Yeah. But the reason why this movie, especially now, I saw this movie along with another movie, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Yeah. Now, I saw these two movies years and years ago when I was a much younger man in my mm-hmm. 30s. And I saw it and I said, ah, well, what's the big deal? I didn't get it. And this is why I advise some of our younger listeners, if you see a movie today that you don't like, yeah. give it about 10, 15 years to go back and revisit mm-hmm. it again. Wait until you've had some years up under your belt and you got a little bit more experience. See, I see seconds now, yeah. and because I'm not that Derek Ferguson who was 30 yeah. years old and now I'm, I'm 20 years older, the feelings expressed in this movie by the John Hamilton character resonate much more with yeah. me. Not to say that I'm unhappy in my life yeah. in marriage because I do. I love most of my life. Of yeah. course, like most people, there's something I don't like about it, but that's just natural. But I understand more now what this character is feeling. Yeah, I didn't understand younger. So now this is why the movie resonates even more for me, as does The Seventh Seal, which is meditations on death and life and what happens afterwards and the meaning of life. Now it resonates more with me because as you get older, and I think that mm-hmm. these are questions that become more serious for you and more realistic, whereas you yeah. have a wonderful phrase that you use. There comes a point in your life you start to realize that there's more days behind than you've got, got ahead. ahead. Yeah. So you really start paying attention to the choices that you make exactly. in your life and how you want to live the rest of your life. And in a lot of ways, that's what Seconds is about. Mm-hmm. How do you want to live your life and what you do to make your life worth living? And, as I said, it's a downright scary it's, movie. It's a scary movie. I think it'd be too slow for some audiences today. And it's so realistic. In some ways, in some of the scenes, especially inside the corporation, yeah. reminds me of some of the Avengers. Yeah, or another thing, it's, it's a very Kafka-esque film. Yeah. This was the payoff of this trilogy, because before that you had Seven Days of May. And I love this film. I've talked about this film before on the show. It's a tense thriller. Well, right talk now. Like, talk. A That's single, it's about a coup. Yeah. It's about how easy it would be to stage a coup in the United States. It supposedly takes place in the future, and Frank and I mentions in his commentary track on the DVD how he did that by going to Europe and buying foreign cars, because foreign cars weren't prevalent mm-hmm. in America at, right. the time. at the time. So he didn't want to do special effects, because he didn't have the budget, but by bringing these cars over, they looked kind of otherworldly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. It's little things like that, or the use of television monitors, which nowadays look quaint, but back when this film first came out, the fact that you had these video conferencing going on right. was kind of weird. Because there is one scene yeah. where Burt Lancaster, who plays the general, yeah. who's in charge of this coup, he turns off his, because he's having yeah. a video conference with somebody else, and then when Kirk Douglas comes into the office, he cuts yeah. off the video monitor. Yeah. And like I said, the thing I absolutely adore about this film is that not a single punch is thrown. The one death happens off screen, and yet it's absolutely tense, and the scary thing is, and I've said this many times, both in print and here on Better in the Dark, the 
best villains believe they're in the right. Absolutely. And there's that scene where Kirk Douglas faces down Burt Lancaster, mm-hmm. and Lancaster will not back down mm-hmm. and says, this is right. I am doing this for the right reasons. You don't believe in him, but you believe that he believes that what he's doing. And I always tell people, and they always say, oh, Derek, mm-hmm. you're right. Good villains. What's the secret to writing a good Well, I don't know what the secret is, but I know the way I write them. Mm-hmm. The villain doesn't think he's the villain. you got to remember, to, the villain thinks he's the hero of his yeah. story. In all of our minds, we're all the hero of exactly. our movie. To him, Kirk Douglas is the villain. Right. Because he's trying to stop him from what he's doing, which he knows is the best thing for this country. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced. And you can't tell him different. Right. That this country would be run much better <laughs> if I was in charge. Directors nowadays could take such a lesson from Frankenheim. Yeah. Because he does what a director does. He puts the camera down, he puts the actors in front of it, and he tells them, act. And this coup is told in such a matter-of-fact way that you believe that this could be pulled off. There's no bombastic things. There's no dramatic music to cue us when right. the bad guy walks in the room. It's done in a very rational, very matter-of-fact There's way. There's very few musical cues in Seven Days in May. And what there is is done by, was it Salt Bass? I think so, yeah. No, actually, Salt Bass did the really excellent title credits. The only real flaw in the film is Ava Gardner, who just looks wrong okay. throughout the film. See, I can never remember she's in that movie. Yeah, well, it's her at the tail end of her career, and she does not look well. And before this, of course, came The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, a yeah. film that had been out of circulation for many years because Frank Sinatra felt it was too painful for the United yeah. States to watch. It's a film about an assassination attempt, and shortly after One, uh, that... presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kennedy was assassinated. A great from perhaps Frank Sinatra's best acting. Yeah, I think it's his finest. I mean, it's notable for a lot of reasons. Angela Lansbury plays mm-hmm. one of the scariest villains. The lengths at which she's willing to go to. And it's one of the things where when it's revealed that she's... It really is a surprise yeah. when you find out that you said... Like, and once again, the thing that I love about her is that she does it for purely selfish reasons. Yeah. And she's like the flip side of Burt Lancaster, who's doing it for love of country. She's doing it for love of self. She's like the ultimate backstage mom. Yeah. She wants her son to become president mm-hmm. because it'll make her look good. It'll yeah. make her, oh, well, I'm the mother of the president of the United States. And what she does to her own son yeah. to achieve these, to me, that's the most frightening thing about the movie. This is her own son yeah. and what she's willing to twist them into becoming. This is the movie that's got one of my favorite sequences of all time. The movie opens up with Frank Sinatra. He's leading a platoon in the Korean War. Gardening party. Yeah. Well, and Henry Silva, he's a Korean. He's supposed to be their scout. But he leads them into a trap. And they're kidnapped by the Red Chinese, I believe. They're brainwashed. Right. And there is this scene where, as part of their brainwashing, they're sitting in a garden party. There's trees and flowers, and there's these women with the frilly hats and the dresses on. But they're talking about brainwashing and torture techniques. And then you get these little flashes where you see that they're actually red Chinese. And the guy that's standing up there on the podium, played by a guy from the Y-5-0. Oh, yeah. He played Wolf Fat. Wolf Fat. I can't think of his name now. But he's the head brainwasher. And they're telling him, okay, well, how do we know these men are really brainwashed? And he proves it by having one of the soldiers go up and strangle another one. Another one blows out the guys. And they do it. Say, yes, the thing ma'am. is, okay, about that when he orders, I think that might actually have been Sinatra, to kill Platoon's mascot. Yeah. Is yeah. that smile on that kid's face. That puppy dog look. This is how thoroughly the brainwashing technique 
and it's worked. So now these guys are sent back to the United States as sleeper agents, yeah. ready to be activated whenever they're needed. Mm-hmm. But Frank Sinatra's character is having nightmares because right. the brainwashing is breaking down for him. And we see where the brainwasher, because he does that to Lawrence Harvey. He yeah. comes every once in a while and reinforces the brainwashing mm-hmm. technique. Now, Frank Sinatra is breaking down on him. So, eventually, he's able to convince his superiors, something happened to us. Yeah. And other members of the platoon, they're having the same nightmares. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that Lawrence Harvey is the one that these red Chinese have all their hopes on to pull off this assassination and create chaos in the United States. It comes down to a race against time. Is Frank Sinatra going to be able to prevent this? Right. Or... And there's a frightening thing, too. Is he another Manchurian sleeper agent yeah. that's supposed to take up where he left off in case Lawrence Harvey yeah. doesn't work? And then you got Janet Lee, who plays a really bizarre role in this, to the point I thought she was another yeah. agent. See, this movie plays with you. Yeah, I noticed that, that here we, we've just talked about two films where we've decided the female lead has the big problem. Yeah. The relationship makes no sense. No sense Between the two, all. between her and Sinatra. Unless you start thinking she's Walter, yeah. a red Chinese agent, mm-hmm. keeping tabs on Sinatra. That's the only way you figure yeah. that it works. But that's it. why these three films are called the Paranoia Trilogy. Oh, they're paranoid. Then you say, what the hell is going You don't know what's going to happen next. And the Manchurian Candidate today still holds up and, as okay. a superior suspense. I want to point to one scene before we leave the Manchurian Candidate. Okay. Because it demonstrates something that I really admire about Frankenheimer, which is that he believes in the happy accident. Yeah. He believes if something happens and a film goes off the rails for a few minutes, it's for the strengthening of the film. There is a scene which is shot slightly out of focus where Frank Sinatra breaks Lawrence Harvey's brainwashing. The reason it's shot out of focus and it's noticeable in the film is because Frank Sinatra got very, 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 very sick with the flu that day. Okay. But Sinatra, being a professional, wanted to do the scene and Frankenheimer felt that even if they tried to reshoot it with him when he was better, it wouldn't have gotten the intensity and the desperation that he got from him when he was feverish. Right. So he kept that. I think the film is better for it. Yeah. Mm. Now, see, I would never have known that unless you told me yeah. that. But now I'm running the scene through my head. And it just shows you how powerful this movie is. Because I can recall scenes from the Manchurian Candidate yeah. with no problem. Movies I saw last week, I don't mm-hmm. remember. But I do remember damn near everything that happens in the Manchurian Candidate. It Canada. also, by the way, uh, the Manchurian Candidate is noteworthy for being the first American film to feature a martial arts sequence. I was going to bring that up. There's a karate fight between Frank Sinatra and Henry Silva. Yes. And yeah, I do believe that's the first time that a martial arts sequence was in the American movie. That's right. It's a brutally realistic yeah. fight scene. I've had some experience with karate in the past. Of course, it's movie violence, but it's yeah. not hi-ya, hi-ya, yeah. high kick. It's none of that. And at the end of it, Frank Sinatra, and this is another touch I like in the movie, he comes out with bruises that he carries yeah. through the rest of the movie. It's not like the next scene, yeah. he's all pretty. And he comes out, he's got a bandage over one eye. But this is consistent with a large number of Frankenheimer's films could be categorized as crime slash action films. One of his last great films was Ronin. Yeah. And Robert De Niro gets fucked up pretty bad about midway through the film. Yeah. And he doesn't recover from it. Even at the very end, when everybody is saying their goodbyes, he's got his hand in a sling. Yeah. He's got his arm in a sling. Yeah. Frankenheimer was not afraid to show that violence is now used to the movies where good guy, he fights off a dozen guys Mm -hmm. and he falls off a 60-story building and he gets up and he laughs it off and he walks away. In Frankenheimer movies, you don't walk away from a fight laughing and grinning. You're hurt and you 
he's not above showing characters limping away. Yeah. The movie I was telling you about that I that I saw the other night, The Train. Right. With again Burt Lancaster, who apparently him and Lancaster they got along. I think they made like three. You'll months. notice throughout Frankenheimer's careers, there are actors who will work with him multiple times. Roy Scheider appears in a number of his films too, because I think that you get the impression that Frankenheimer definitely believed that you found the right person for the job and then you backed away. You yeah. trusted him or her to do their job. A lot of actors responded to and appreciated that. And what you talk about the happy accident in this mm-hmm. movie, The Train, which is about Burt Lancaster, he's a French resistance fighter, and Paul Schofield plays a Nazi general in Paris. And right. Paris has been liberated in a matter of days. The Allies yeah. are going to come in. Yeah. So Schofield has got all of these art treasures. He's got statues and paintings and all right. this other good stuff that he wants to take back to Germany. Because right. he's an art lover himself. He uses the ploy because originally his superior said, listen, we don't have time for this crap. The Allies come, we gotta get out. They need the trains to take their troops out of here. But he said, listen, you know how much this art is worth? We can sell this and get a lot. Now that gets their attention. Of course, he has no intention of selling it himself. Burt Lancaster is a resistance fighter. He really doesn't care about the artwork on the train. He just cares about when are the Allies going to come to liberate Paris. But during the course of the movie, we see that his companions, who do care about this art, because Mm -hmm. this is French artwork, this is the soul of their country, they're willing to die one after another. And it comes down to Lancaster, he's Mm -hmm. by himself trying to stop this train. Now, here's what you talk about the happy accident, which I'm leading up to. Burt Lancaster was playing golf one day. Yeah. And he twisted his leg, and his knee and his ankle was wrenched very badly. So he had a limp. Now, today, you know what they would have did? They would have stopped the movie. And they said, well, we got to wait until... No, you know what Frankenheimer did? He sat down and wrote and says, okay, well, you know what we're going to do? You run across that bridge, and I'm going to have the guys shoot at you. And when you get halfway across, you fall down. He said, I need you to run naturally as best you can until you get there. After that, and for the rest of the movie, you can limp all you want. Which is what Lancaster did. Mm -hmm. He went and then fell down. And then he got up, and he was limping, and, well, and he had to limp for the rest of the movie. But see, it didn't bother you, because yeah. you said, okay, he got to run across the you got to think that that came from the fact that Frankenheimer spent all those years in television, where you had two days of rehearsal, and then you had to go live. And if something happened while you were shooting live... You had to work around it immediately. You just had to go with it. Whatever accident happened, you had to incorporate that into whatever happened. And when I read that story, I said, that's wonderful. And to mm-hmm. me, that's creativity. That you right. make something like that work for you in the context of what you're doing instead of just like, oh man, I can't do this now. Yeah. I, I got to reshoot this. I got No, he just said, you just run across it. And it wasn't in the shooting script. Yeah. Frank and I just said, oh, we're going to go to this bridge. Run across the bridge. Go halfway across, mm-hmm. fall down, right. and when you get up, you limp. You can limp for the rest of the movie. Exactly. And they did it. And you see Lancaster through the rest of the movie. He's limping, mm-hmm. but he's in there. It's a great movie. What else can we talk about? He did the first Thomas Harris novel. Which was? Black Sunday. Oh, yeah. Okay, Bruce Stern. Yes. Trying to blow up the Super Bowl with yeah. a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the goofiness of the plan. You laugh and you say, what kind of idiot that thinks of blowing up the Super yeah. Bowl with a blimp? The Goodyear blimp, I Right, mean. yeah. Okay. And he had this reputation also for stepping in when other directors abandon a project or for various reasons can no longer commit to a project they had already committed to. Should we talk about the three hundred pound gorilla? I was actually gonna I was the- actually going to talk about things such as the French Connection oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think, as good a film as the original. I think so too. The French Connection gets a bad rap 
but I don't think it's just as good as the French Connection. But I think it's damn near close yeah. for reasons that have got nothing to do with the French Connection one. But this is, I think, the first time he works with Snyder. They reunited for what, 52 Pickup, I believe? He, they reunited a couple of times. But yes, yeah. I'm going to get to 52 Pickup in a oh, few okay. minutes. I love that film. But yeah, I think because Snyder worked with him on a couple of projects. He also worked with him on The Fourth War, which oh. is a Cold War thriller that he did. Oh, okay. The thing is, of course, is that at this point he's starting to work in color. Most of the films we've been talking about up to this point have been in black and white. Well, he loved black and white. Oh, Frankenheimer, I saw into I saw yeah. something with him on Turner Classic Movies, and he said, "Well, he doesn't regret color." He said, "But if he had his way, every yeah. movie he made would have been in oh, black he, and white." He talks about quite frequently, like his last theatrical film, not great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be very honest, going to be very upfront about it. It's called Reindeer Games. Ben Affleck. Ben, ben Affleck, yeah. Gary Sinise, yeah. and Charlize Theron. Yeah, some of the earliest work. Where Ben Affleck pretends to be a certain ex-con because he wants to fuck Charlize Theron, and who wouldn't? But it turns out Can't that, blame him for that. that she's the bait in a plot run by Gary Sinise to rob an Indian casino. It's a needlessly complicated yeah, plot. But with Ben Affleck pretending he's this other guy. Yeah. yeah. But Frankenheimer said on the commentary track, and all of his commentary tracks are worth listening to, mm-hmm. that in most of his color films, he tries to desaturate the color as much as he can so that he can have a de facto black and white. Right. It really shows in Reindeer, because particularly because Reindeer Games takes place primarily in the snowy... In the snow, yeah. So there's that great contrast between the snow and the characters. Mm-hmm. But then we have 52 Pickup, which we briefly touched upon, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating because it's a glimpse into John Frankenheimer's world if... Instead of his first experiences being in television, mm-hmm. what if he became an intern at AIP? Oh, okay. Because it's very much an exploitation film. It's very, very down and dirty. Another one of these great, crazy-ass casts. Uh, based on Elmo Leonard novel, yes, it if, is. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yes, it is. I've never seen it. Oh, I recommend it. I've got to see it. on Netflix and features a great villain in Julian Glover. Yeah, and Anne Margaret plays, yeah, uh, plays his wife. Plays wife, I believe. Yeah. Right. So amazing to me. I've never seen. I've heard about it for years. And then you get some of the crazier things like Ninety Nine and Forty Four and One Hundred. I love that movie. That film is insane. That's a comic book movie yeah. ever. You're old enough to remember the movie posters, which yeah. were set up like a comic book page. Uh-huh. With Richard Harris smacking around Anne Turkel. And, and I'm going to tell you something. If anybody's seen that movie, and then if they've read my novel Diamondback, yeah. they'll see that there's a lot of influence of that movie yeah. in the book I wrote. I love that movie with Richard Harris, mm-hmm. who plays a mysterious gunman yeah. who comes to this town that's never named and quickly becomes embroiled in this gang war between yeah. who is it? Chuck Connors plays the one with the artificial so. hand. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God! It's a bizarre. Love that movie. Very strange, but <clears throat> but yeah, you want to talk about the three hundred pound gorilla in the room? Well, only because I know you, and I never want to pass up opportunity <laughs> for you to vent about something you don't like. And you didn't mention that he came on the Trouble Project yes. that other directors had been kicked off was, and the perfect example is the Island of Doctor. The Island of Doctor Moreau, the nineteen ninety six adaptation mm-hmm. of the H. G. Wells novel, which was the brainchild of very problematic director Richard Staley, who at that time had done one really bad film called Hardware, and one exceptionally good mm-hmm. horror film called Dust Devil. Ah, uh, yeah. I love Dust Devil. Yeah, I, I hated Devil. Hardware. That's was, with Dylan McDermott. Yes. Said, yeah. Dylan McDermott gets I, chased around an apartment by a, a killer robot for Yeah, a couple and he's hours. got an artificial hand. And he's listening to Iggy Pop on the, yeah, on the yeah. stereo. I, I remember dimly seeing that 
movie in a drunken haze. But Staley <laughs> was only shooting for about a week when mm-hmm. he was removed. Right. Why, we never know. Stanley claims that what he wanted was not what the, the studio wanted. He very notoriously snuck on the set after the, as one of the extras. After the fact. Well, it's one of those movies that if you talk to ten different yeah. people, you get ten different stories. Everybody has the old version of what happened, as far as Alan Dr. Yeah. Apparently, it was a train wreck right from the yeah. beginning. Oh, and it looks like a train wreck. Supposedly, in particular, Frankenheimer and Kilmer could not stand each other. Yeah. To yeah. the point point where now, granted, it's one of these stories where if it's not apocryphal, it should be true. Mm-hmm. Where after Kilmer shot his last scene in the film, Frankenheimer was reported as saying very loudly to everyone and anyone, "Now get this fucking bastard off my set." I don't blame him. <laughs> From all reports, hey, just what I've heard, Kilmer really went out his way mm-hmm. to antagonize, you know, be a yeah. real prick on this movie. And then, of course, you got Marlon Brando, who's at the center of everything, and uh, is who, being goofy Marlon, who was apparently out of control, and nobody could do anything with him. That was one reason why they brought Frankenheimer because they thought, well, maybe he's an experienced yeah. guy; he's been around for 30, 40 years. Maybe he, maybe can, he can do. Marlon something. will respect him enough. But <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Brando, nobody could control Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando's performance in this film is so bizarre and goofy that it actually became a running character on South Park. Yeah, it's just strange. Normally, I wouldn't advise anybody to see the Island of Doctor yeah. Moreau, but if you want to see something that literally has to be seen to be believed, you have to see Marlon Brando's yeah. performance in the Island of Doctor Moreau. To me, he woke up. Every day he said, okay, well, what can I do now to screw with this guy? He was notorious in that. He hated the work. His most famous role probably is Apocalypse Now. They filmed that in Shadow because they had to do it that way because he wouldn't cooperate with the director. Yeah. He had ballooned up like 300 pounds, mm-hmm. something like that, at the time. That was the only way that they could do it. I don't think Brando has ever put a more bizarre performance on film than this one, uh-huh. where he's flouncing around in moo-moos everywhere, yeah. and playing the piano for his animen with his little homunculus sitting on top of it. What the fuck? There was an episode of The Simpsons that, that I believe probably was a spoof one that when Homer yeah. Simpson finds out that if he gets up to a certain size, he can stay home oh, with yeah. his ability and work. And so help me, the boo he wears in that looks just like the mm-hmm. one that Marlon Brando wears in the island of yeah. Dr. Moreau. But Brando notoriously was a guy... Supposedly, he hated the work, and if he took any opportunity, he could. You know the famous story about when they said, okay, well, we want you to play Jor-El. Yes. And he said, well, can we put a green bagel on there, and I can just do the bagel in a briefcase. Yeah, and nobody was sure if he was joking or not, Mm -hmm. if he was for real. Some people say, nah, he was just bullshitting around. Other people say, no, Marlon was serious. If he could have got away with not working, he would have done it. I got to admit, because it seems like every time Frankenheimer gets explicitly near the horror genre, disaster looms. Yeah. Even before Moreau, there was, of course, another literal 300-pound bear that dare not speak its name. Who was it? Prophecy. Oh, pro- oh, my God. The one with the mutant bear. The mutant bear chasing the pregnant Talia Shire through the Pacific Northwest. Oh, God. Probably one of the worst, quote-unquote, relevant horror films we've ever seen. In- and I think Frank and I would be the first to admit, yeah, that sucked. Yeah, that sucked. I actually remember seeing that movie on a double bill with Grizzly. Yeah. With Christopher George. Twice the bears. Yeah. Jaws on land. Yeah. I don't think so. As much as this seems to be his lot in life, I would have been fascinated if he had lived a little while longer, because you know what film he was working on when he died? What was that? A little film called Exorcist the Beginning. Oh, okay. Which, as you know, has its own little bizarre 
production where they had... They actually filmed the whole damn movie. Yeah, because after Frankenheimer died, they got Paul Schrader, another very idiosyncratic, but always interesting director. Paid all this money. Now, the movie was completed and shot. They In post-production, ready to be released. And the studio said, nah, we don't like it. Pull the movie, completely reshot it with another director. Randy Harlan. I believe it was the same actor played the Stella Skarsgård. Yeah. Reshot the entire damn movie. The Randy Harlan version was released. Nobody liked it. And they decided to release the Paul Schrader version on video. Have you seen either one of them? I've not seen either one. I've seen them both. And I'm going to tell you one thing that's weird. They're both good movies. There's nothing wrong with either one of them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the Schrader version. Right. It's a damn good movie. The Randy Harlan movie is not as good as the Considering what we've been getting from Randy Harlan yeah. lately, it's a lot better. <laughs> Really, I was surprised. I mean, it's no classic by any stretch of the imagination. It works as its own movie. You really don't have to have any knowledge of The Exorcist at all yeah. in order to watch this movie and enjoy it on its own terms. Didn't they put them both out on the same DVD? They put them out in parallel DVDs, because originally they just put out the Rennie Harlan version, but everybody was going... The box office was terrible. The audiences did not like it, and they said, okay, we'll put that thing out. Let's try to recoup our... Yeah. And I think people like the Schrader version better. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with either one. Yeah. Either one of them. Hollywood is weird. You're going to make the entire movie and spend mm-hmm. all this money, and then you're going to say, nope, we don't like it. Go ahead and shoot, yeah. Go ahead and shoot a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Then there's Dead Bang, the Don Johnson white supremacist thriller. Ah, uh, yeah. I've seen that one. The funny thing is, is that when I first heard the film was about to be released, I thought it was an adaptation of the Shell Scott novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Don Johnson as Shell Scott? That don't work. Actually, he plays a character that's totally unlike, because I yeah. believe he made this on one of his summer hiatuses yeah. from Miami Vice. And it's totally unlike the Sunny well, Project character. Well, it's 1989, so it's probably like a year or so after. Maybe a year yeah. or so later, yeah. I'm going to throw out some other name. Grand Prix, of course, the, the racing picture. That's an interesting movie. If anybody's got Turner Classic movies, mm-hmm. that's a pretty popular movie. There. It pops up every once yeah. in a while. Frankenheimer was a racing enthusiast. Yeah. This movie... He had special cameras made mm-hmm. that actually attached because he filmed this during the Grand Prix. Right. He didn't just get a whole bunch of extras. When you see those crowd scenes in the movie, that's the actual crowd yeah. that's at the Grand Prix. And he has actual racing drivers playing themselves in the movie mm-hmm. as well. I've seen it. James Garner is in it. It's got an interesting cast. It's not a movie, again, I'd say must see unless, of course, you're a Frankenstein yeah. fan. But it's interesting to watch if just for the camera work. That's inside the cockpit of the cars and on the side of the cars as they're going through the track. It's interesting. Yeah. Then we no got, speed racer, but yeah. it's interesting. This is what I want to throw out. The Iceman Cometh. Never seen it. The four-hour-long adaptation of the Eugene O'Neill play. Wow. Which, once again, was done in 1973. Is that the one with Lee Marvin? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've heard of this one. Yeah. It's done in 1973, back when, once again, as we cited in the other episode we recorded today, movie going was an event. You went out and you got dressed up and you saw nothing wrong with spending four hours watching existential angst yeah. in an Irish family. You hear people nowadays, and I touched on this in another episode, mm-hmm. it's really weird. Nowadays, when I tell people about movies that I recommend it to them, mm-hmm. that's the first thing they ask me, well, how long is it? Wait a minute, how long is it? About an hour and a half, about two hours. Oh, man, that's too long. I don't get it. Are you five years old? And, yeah. you and I have people that have told me, they can't watch a movie that long. You yeah. can't sit and watch a two-hour movie. Oh, that's too long. That's too long. Later for you. Then we have The Challenge, the Scott Glenn starring martial arts film. Ah, Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. Is in that one too. Yeah. That was a good one. Frankenheimer was an alcoholic. 
and the challenge was where his alcoholism got to the point where he said, I gotta get help. <laughs> because he said he found himself drinking actually on the set. He said himself, that's not on and when it that, was the, that was the same thing that happened during the Days of Wine and Roses, yeah. the Jack Lemon and Blake Edwards. After they made that movie, the both of them went into rehab. Right. Because they were drinking on the set while they were making that movie. Both of them were alcoholics while they were making a movie. And they said, no, we got to get help. I have to wonder if Frankenheimer, I'm sure he appreciated being a theatrical director. Oh, I'm sure he did too. But I wonder if he would have been happy just being a television director his whole life. I think he would have been. But by then, at around that time, that's when the climate of television was changing. Yeah. And you did have most of the directors, like we were talking about Sidney mm-hmm. LeMay, him, yeah. and there's a few others. They graduated from television to movies. You know what it was? The anthology series was dying. Yeah, that's another thing. Live television was dying. Yeah. They were switching to film. They were switching yeah. to film. They were switching to episodic television. Mm-hmm. They were switching to a very firmly set formula for each kind of show. Right. And I think that people like Frankenheimer, like Lament, like Rod Serling, Rod Serling right. were never comfortable with that new meme. And you have to remember, too, this is another thing, that out in Hollywood, they were making movie versions yeah. of many of these dramas. Yeah. Like, like, well, it still exists to this day. Ma- like you? Marty. Yeah. And there was Rod Serling, that office building set one. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh. Uh, Not network. I keep thinking. Well, they did Requiem as Requiem a for a heavyweight as a patterns. feature. Patterns. Patterns. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. They were doing these as feature films. And unlike Hollywood today... They were asking the creators of them, yeah. listen, come out here and work on it. Make a movie out of this for us. Well, have you, have you seen the trailer yet for a film called Real Steel? No. It's a big screen adaptation of the Rod Serling Twilight Zone oh, episode the Steel. U- the Hugh Jackman thing. Yes. Oh, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. The famous Twilight Zone. Yeah. With Lee Marvin mm-hmm. again. Where he played the down and out boxer coach right. who had a robot. Right. And the robot broke and couldn't be fixed. And he had to go out there and he had to pretend. Yeah, but from looking at you, Jackman, when I, they've got these transformer-looking things, yeah. robots. They don't look human like, oh, yeah. That's where they got that from. Yeah. And they've been very honest that this is a big screen version of that story. Oh, okay, cool. See, I never And you know what? That. I'd rather see adaptations of teleplays from the anthology shows mm-hmm. than see big screen adaptations of television series. Good point. It's kind of sad that this is a guy, he worked very hard at his craft. Yeah, he produced some duds. He produced The Prophecy. He produced The Island Doctor Moreau. He produced The Hallcraft Covenant. Everybody produces duds. Back then, it should be noted, they weren't as hard on directors as they are now. But that's only because there's so much more to lose when a movie doesn't make money as it was back then. Back then, if they had a million dollar budget, that was a lot. Yeah. Back when we're talking about 50s or 60s, mm-hmm. if you had a million dollars to make a movie, you had a lot of money. Right. It's not like today where you got $100 million and $200 million. So, of course, you can't take the chances that you would take when you spend it on hunt, which is why we have movie mm-hmm. studios. Yeah. You know, we're going to make an independent branch. Right. So you can make a small little movie for 3 or 5 or $7 million yeah. and make back your money. If mm-hmm. the movie makes 30 40 $50 million... That's made true. a prop. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's great. But Frankenheimer, I love the fact that he got his training in television because that taught him how to work quick. That taught him how to work fast, and it gave him a emphasis on actors and characters. Yeah. As opposed to spectacle. Exactly. Which is, I think, a problem with many directors today. They come up through music video. And music video is about the spectacle. Mm -hmm. So they don't believe the characters are as important as the big punchline sequences. Right. 
or else you get somebody like a M. Night Shyamalan, whose whole movie is nothing more for a prop than to get to the punchline, the yeah. so-called twist, and as a consequence, where's the story, where's the characters, all you're doing is leading, and you can't do that, you have to have a story, not just, I gotta get to this punchline, right. I gotta get to the cool moment when, I tell, no, 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 that's not it, Frankenheimer, he put the camera down, he put the actors in front of the camera, and he let them out. Right. Now, you may not agree with me on this, but I'm going to tell you, you know, we got an actor today, reminds me of a little bit of Frankenheimer in the way he films his actors and the way he films his dialogue scenes. Who? Quentin Tarantino. I could see that. Actually. I could see yeah. that. Because Tarantino puts the camera down, mm-hmm. he puts the actor, like, in Glorious Glorious Bastards. That amazing first scene where yeah. we have, where it's the Nazi comes in and he's confronted. That scene goes on for a long time, and it's just the two men talking. Well, you know what? Like, okay, going back to Ronan for a second. For all the talk everybody makes about the car chases, the central scene, the scene that that film is linchpin two is the scene where Jean Reno's Vincent drives Sam played by Robert De Niro to his friend's house played by by the way Hugo Drax himself yeah and we get that harrowing scene where De Niro is performing surgery on himself and then the discussion he has with the friend Jean Paul about the 40 Ronin yeah that scene would never happen that's yeah. something you can see taking place in a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's just the yeah. two men talking, and it's an extended scene. There's no cutting back and forth. Yeah. It's just the two men talking, and it's totally riveting. It's just an amazing scene. You have all these directors now that are more interested in, well, how can they move the camera, and what kind of tricks mm-hmm. can they pull, instead of just letting the actors do their thing. Going back to what you're talking about, the French Connection, mm-hmm. you have a lot of scenes that are like that, where it's just people talking. And really, there's not as much action in the French Connection as a lot of people think there is. You have that amazing car chase. Yeah. And you have at the end, there's another chase where we see that Popeye duel, and this is really, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't catch it, and it was later on, where he actually kills a cop. Yeah. And he doesn't tell anybody about it while he's trying to catch the French guy, the frog. Mm -hmm. For me, the sequence that sticks out to me about the French Connection 2 is not any of the chasings. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Frankenheimer had that reputation for doing good chasings. Oh, well, especially after the French Connection, yeah. which it should be noted, was probably the movie that kicked off the whole gritty cop thriller yeah. boom that we had during the 70s and 80s. Was that sequence where they have to detox Popeye. Oh, Popeye Doyle, yeah. After they get him hooked on heroin. Well, that's the revenge then. And that's another thing that I really like about the French Connection too is that very wisely... They took the character out of his home New yeah. York turf where he's king of the walk and he knows everybody, he knows all the angles, and he's mm-hmm. in Paris, yeah. France, and he's completely out of his element. Yeah. He doesn't speak the language, he sticks up like a sore thumb. The bad guy gets a hold of him. He doesn't decide to kill him. Yeah. He says, you know what I want to do? I'm going to hook him on heroin and then let him live the rest of his life as a junkie. Right. And that's what happens. And you're right, that is a very frightening scene where mm-hmm. he has to undergo detox. Yeah. This was a man who loved making movies, mm-hmm. who loved telling stories stories. Everything I can get from other people and from his commentaries seemed to be just like a very genuinely nice human being. Yeah, he's one of those directors that was very notable Mm. and that he didn't have any controversy. Mm. He was a blue-collar guy. He got up in the morning, he went, he did his job, he came home. Yeah. The fact that he's a movie director, he didn't see himself as being any kind of auteur. This was his job. He went, he did the best way he could, then he went home to his wife, kissed his wife, kissed his kids, and then he had dinner with the baby, got him the next day. Right. Which kind of, to me, is a very sensible attitude to take towards it, because you got these guys that start thinking they're geniuses, that's when they go off the rails. But Frankenheimer does come a lot closer to genius in that he took a workmanlike, careful approach to his Mm -hmm. craft. 
And me, I appreciate every single one of his movies that I've yes. seen. And I know even the ones I haven't seen, like 52 Pixels. Now I'm going to go right. make sure that I see that. You would really appreciate it. Cause oh, I'm some... going to look that up on Netflix yeah, right, right after you leave. To review. We just wanted to spend some time and, and just talk about this, man. We've referred to him many times. Yeah without actively spending some time just discussing him. Now, if somebody was interested in sampling Frankenheimer, what would you suggest they watch? For most of our viewers, who mm-hmm. are probably of a younger age, right. before they delve back into his other movies, I would say get something recent that he's made that you can get easy to what he's doing. Yeah. Get Ronan, starring Robert De Niro yeah. and John Reno. And Sean Bean is in this one, yeah. too. I know you don't care for the movie so much as I do. You think oh, I like the movie just fine. Oh, you yeah, think that um, the car chase scenes are just over? No, I think that people focus on the car chases a little too much. And remember, back in the old days, when that film came out, I was like, greatest car chases ever? I'm like, yeah. not really. They're great car chases. But for me, the meat and potatoes of that film comes in watching De Niro's old hand character take over that operation. Yeah. He has that great scene where Sean Bean, and Sean Bean is playing yeah. this guy, he's got a lot of bombastic things, and he says, yeah, I was in the IRA, yeah. and I was doing this, and that, and they're outlining a plan mm-hmm. to catch these cars in a crossfire, and Sean Bean says, okay, well, we put a guy here, we put a guy here, and we do this, and bam, 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 and, and Robin De gets up and says, wait a minute, you're gonna put a guy here? He said, yeah. yeah. You're going to put a guy here? So yeah. yeah. Asshole, we're both going to shoot yeah. each other. He said, what are you talking about? Yeah, the he way said, he just gets up there and just like, he rubs out the dry erase board, goes, go on, draw it again. Yeah, draw it again. Draw it again. Yeah, draw it again. And then there's that wonderful quote, and I love this, and I yeah. always use this in conversations, and people never know what I'm referring to, yeah. but it's a way to prove that whatever people talk about is bullshit. What is the color of the boathouse in Herefordshire? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody said, what? And, and then John Renault goes, what is the color of the It's like, I don't know. He said, I don't know. I've never been. I don't even know if there is a boathouse in there. Yes. But instead of the guy just answering the question, oh, man. And of course, I love the fact, I saw this movie with a bunch of yeah. friends of mine. I was working yeah. at Home Depot. So me and a bunch of other guys, we said, well, let's go see this movie. Because we all love Robbie. Yeah. We go see it. Come out, we go into the bar. And we're talking about it. And not one of them caught it. They all said, Man, but what was in the briefcase? They never said it was a briefcase. I said, it doesn't matter. matter what was in the briefcase. Well, why they go through all of that, man? You can't go through all of that. I said, you're not getting the point in the movie. And finally, when I told him, I said, okay, any of you ever seen the Quentin Tarantino movie, Pulp Fiction? I told them, and they believed me. It's the same briefcase from that movie. And they said, well, Dirt knows about movie. They were happy with that. They said... Oh, okay, okay, that'll work. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tell people. If you're mad that you don't know, just assume it's the same briefcase from right. Pulp Fiction. And I, I love the fact, because I've always said that if you bring up a question about the holes in your plot, your script is lacking. But this is one of the rare cases where it works because everybody keeps asking, what's in the case? Mm-hmm. It's something we want. That's all you need to know. They want it. They want to keep it out of their hands. Right. That's it. And we're off to the races. Of course, the trick of it is, for all the talk about the box, the box isn't the objective of the adventure. No, it's not. It's something totally different, which, if you pay attention to the movie, see, John Reno gets it. He becomes his ally Mm -hmm. in it in a very subtle way. It's not ever stated, well, I'm on your side now. But you can see in their dialogue and and in the way that Mm -hmm. they act. The objective of the movie is stated. Yes, Barry he says it to Natasha Michelhone. There's no other way you can make it as clear. The only other way you can make it any clearer, 
you'd have to stop the movie or you'd have to have a box with Sam Elliott in the bottom yes. and, and sit at the bar explaining it to you. <laughs> well, you see what they want. <laughs> and as we've said many times, every movie can be made better by two things. You have Helen Mirren shoot and show up and shoot somebody with a machine gun or you have a little box in the right-hand lower corner of the screen at the end while the credits is running and Sam Elliott explains what you just saw. Now, that was the only way Ronan could have made it any clearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so watch Ronan, and then I would advise that you go watch The Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May. Throw up seconds in there, too. The whole paranoia. Yeah, trilogy. but, okay, I was going to get to yeah. this. If you're going to watch seconds, watch that before you watch the other movie, because it's such a downer. I don't want you to leave with that and say, damn, that guy's depressing. Yeah. I would not advise watching seconds last. Watch it in between The Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May. Somewhere I, I would personally also recommend 52 Pickup. 52 Pickup, right. Which was, I think, the only film he did for the canon group, but mm-hmm. it shows him not being afraid at all of getting in touch with his inner sleazebag. It's a very grimy and features some great villains, but just really a well-made film. Far better made than it really should be for a canon picture. Oh, really? That yeah. is a recommendation. Yeah, well, I remember some of the canon yeah. movies. Yeah, they were cranking them things, I swear, like once a week. Yeah, so that's our recommendation for Frankenheimer. But those are the movies that you definitely should see. And if you do go and watch these films, listen to the commentary tracks. He's a very interesting, very lively commentator on his own work. Mm-hmm. Or was, because he's unfortunately he's passed away. Yeah. I guess that's it. That's it. So let's talk about the administrative. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you wanted to say that you thought the I the why are you shooting an arrow? Don't worry about that. Whether you think that the idea of watching Marlon Brando in a tutu playing the piano for his homunculus is the height of art, there's a number of ways you can tell us this. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com and participate in the forums. You can join the Facebook fan page at Facebook. Just look for Better in the Dark. You can also follow both Derek and myself on Facebook, and you can see that wacky karaoke video. We're not hard to find. You can follow us on LiveJournal for as long as LiveJournal exists. (laughs) Derek's LiveJournal is Derek Ferguson's Notebook. And Tom's is Space Monkey Mafia. You can also, if you've missed any of this information, you can go to bitdsite.com, run by the excellent Mr. Kelly Loge, where all this information and other fun stuff like the BITD Hottie Hall of Fame is there for your perusal. You want to also check in with pulpworkspress.com and learn about How the West Was Weird and How the West Was Weird Volume 2. Let me see one thing. Yeah. We were just talking about the live journal brouhaha going on. And you really should, Tom, you should really either on WordPress or Blogger, if for no other reason than to move over your wonderful 10 statements on. (laughs) No, because for those of you who don't know, Tom goes sees a movie, he does a review of it, but of course in his own unique style. And they usually start with 10 statements about whatever the movie is. And he's got them on live journal, and it would just be a shame if something did happen and they were lost. So you should really move those over there and archive them somewhere so people... 
people can read them and enjoy yes. them. Put them all in one place, which is why I did the movie review thing. Because yeah. my movie reviews are scattered all over the place, so that they're all mm-hmm. in one place, so people didn't have to scroll through the whole live journal. Yeah, because we've got that. We've got the thirty songs, thirty days that I do every right, year. Right. Yeah. The new thing that I started that I should get back to pretty soon called cover verses, where I talk about cover songs versus the original. Yeah, but have them all in one place, so this way people don't have to scroll back through. Them. And like we were saying, I don't know if you guys noticed that at the time that we're recording this, live journal is under siege yeah. by a hacker. It's a very unreliable thing right about now, so I don't care about anybody else. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'd be okay. more to move your 10 statements and have them someplace safe. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm just saying. So. so go right ahead. We were talking about very briefly how the West was weird. Volume 2 is coming up in July. That's mm-hmm. been confirmed. And both Tom and I have stories in that Volume 2. And mm-hmm. you should pick up Volume 1 right. to get yourself ready for it. As Tom and I also have stories in there. If you didn't know about it before, well, then you must not be listening to Better in the Dark. In, right. in which case, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to kick your ass. Most definitely. And Tom, you were saying in the other episodes some very exciting news that you're going to be doing actual The Voice thing. Yeah. Russ Anderson, the uh, mastermind behind Pulp mm-hmm. Express, wants to do a little book on tape of How the West Was Weird Volume 2. And one of the esteemed writers and a person who has been a guest host on the show, Ron Fortier, officially asked me to do the honors of reading his story, The Yellow Dog, has part of this book's on tape. Yeah, that's going to be something we're all looking forward to. I mm-hmm. know I am. So what else are we left with? What else are we left with? Altered Visions? Ah, uh, yeah. The Derek and I both. site that we both write Yes. For. We're given by the head there, Doug Bookie, our own little corner of the universe, where we can play and not be bothered by the others. So if you're a fan of the Avengers, Tom mm-hmm. writes Avengers West Coast and I write Avengers. Yes. And we just do it. Basically, it's just a lot of fun. To right. Write about adventures of our favorite superheroes. Mm-hmm. And we are gearing up for the big crossover. Yeah. Which is coming late this spring, early this summer, which is, of course, Infected! But have we ever actually written anything together? Well, when they were at Abortive Marvel 2000. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, less said about that the better. Yeah, that was the aborted Marvel 2000 thing. There was that brief period where we were trying to get something going with AV2K towards the tail end of their run. Yeah. Where I was writing plots and right. you and I were writing the stories right. for their Avengers West Coast. This is going to be the first time since M2K where I think we're doing a, a full cult yeah. collaboration. Because people ask me about that all the time. So when you're a writer and Tom's writing, have you guys ever actually written anything? I said, except for, like you said, that yeah. one abortive attempt that I don't want to talk about. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've never written. Oh, and we have talked about a couple of projects bringing some of our pulp characters together. Right. The Diamondback and Elsa story, which came out of the whole image of the two of them standing over a grave with guns drawn guns at each other. At each other yeah. um, and Dylan coming to Chimera Fall. Although out. Dylan teaming up with a luchador is kind of, it's an image I <laughs> yeah. can't get. It seems natural yeah. for some reason. Well, I have a Don Quavo story mm-hmm. in my head, which is maybe coming out soon, which kind of gives a little more background on El Vengador de Sangre, the character from the Abortive Onyx Revolve novel. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there's been many El Vengadors de Sangre throughout history and throughout Mm -hmm. time. So it's possible for anybody to meet an else it just won't yeah, be just this particular right. one cool stuff so so you guys got a lot to look forward to that we're going to be bringing you in the coming months until then this has been Derek Ferguson and this has been Mr. Thomas DJ 
And no matter what you do, no matter where you go, there's only one thing we have to say. Go watch that John Frankenheimer film, yes? Hey, go watch that John Frankenheimer film. I like that. We miss you, John. God bless. Have a good evening. (laughs) Hey, John, why are they staring at me like that? They know. (laughs) They know what? They're like you. Reborn. Listening to Better in the Dark featuring Thomas and Jan Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to the Film Sack crew, the Cold Case Cinema Cast, Lord Bloodraw of the Nerve Racking Auditorium, Eric Froman, of course, all the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark once tried to stage a coup of DC Comics, but after Dan DiDio tried to run us through with a sword and stuff us in a matchbox, all the while shouting, Titans! We're a bit wary of trying again. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.bitdsite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright Thomas D.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that asking for anything from a shady organization with a strange room full of desperate men making phone calls is a very, very, very unwise idea. Perhaps you could explain to me what you mean by the devil. You seem to be on terms with him. Well, permit me, Mr. Douglas, to tell you something of the devil that I've come to know him. The devil is that element in human nature that impels us to destroy and debase. Hello? Is this thing on? What? You didn't think we were going to be gone that long, did you? You've been listening to the Chronic Rift Podcast. With all new episodes beginning May 19th with our episode zero. Each week we deliver news, reviews, and interviews while discussing the latest pop culture phenomena. And don't forget the guest hosts for the in-review segments, Paul. For bios, blogs, podcast archive, and general information, visit us on the web at chronicrift.com. The Chronic Rift is part of the Mevio Network, where you can listen to our podcasts, subscribe to our iTunes, Zune, and RSS feeds. That's May 19th at chronicrift.mevio.com. For The Chronic Rift, this is Paul K. Bisson. The Chronic Rift is a Lucky Shot production. I love it when he says that part. <laughs>